The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. This podcast began with both Pete and I, two kindred souls with a passion for moving the recovery process forward. If you've started listening more recently, say since the beginning of 2022, you likely noticed that Pete is absent from conversations. This is because he had a rather unexpected and abrupt departure from this earthly plane. Pete's voice remains in the intro in reverence to and respect for his part of our joint vision for this project. Simply put, it wouldn't be where it is today, nor have a future without him. Now, on to another great conversation. I've been doing this work for almost seven years, and what I have learned is that the healthcare system sets you up for failure by design. It is wildly complex. It is something I spend every single day of my life studying, and I'm still confused. You know, and and so I think to know that there is help out there, possibly free of charge, in your in your regional location from an attorney to help counsel you through what you're going through and what your options are. You know, hopefully that can provide some relief to folks and give you ideas about who to reach out to. In this episode of Noggins and Neurons, I interview two supervising attorneys from the Center for Elder Law and Justice, located in Buffalo, New York, which just happens to be where I currently live. Rachel Baldessaro is the supervising attorney for the MedLaw Partnership of Western New York. The MedLaw Partnership is a medical legal partnership between the Center for Elder Law and Justice, the Erie County Medical Center, and Kaleida Health, two rather large systems here in Western New York. With the goal of improving health outcomes and quality of life for individuals through access to free civil legal services. Prior to joining the Center for Elder Law and Justice, 
Rachel worked as a staff attorney at Erie County Bar Association Volunteer Lawyers Project, Incorporated, where she oversaw the Unemployment Insurance Benefits Program. She also worked as a labor relations specialist for Monroe II Orleans BOCES, where she counseled more than 20 Rochester, New York area school districts on labor and employment issues and matters relating to education law. She is a member of the Bar Association of Erie County and the Women's Bar Association of the State of New York, Western New York chapter, and serves as a member of the Fundraising Board Committee for the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals of Erie County. Rachel is a graduate of the State University of New York at Geneseo and received her Juris Doctor from the University at Buffalo School of Law. Kelly Barrett Sarama is a supervising attorney at the Center for Elder Law and Justice in the Healthcare Advocacy Unit. She represents clients in appeals and grievances involving Medicaid, Medicaid-managed long-term care, Medicare, and private health insurance companies. Kelly also advocates for clients' health care rights in New York State. She has been an active member of the Bar Association of Erie County since 2015, has served as chair of the Elder Law Committee since 2018. Kelly is also a member of the New York State Bar Association, where she participates in the Health Law and the Elder Law and Special Needs Committees, and is a member of the Women's Bar Association of the State of New York. Kelly earned her Bachelor of Arts degree from the State University of New York at Buffalo and her Juris Doctor from the State University of New York at Buffalo Law School. Both Rachel and Kelly have received numerous awards for their dedication to service and leadership. It is the mission of the Center for Elder Law and Justice to improve the quality of life for elderly, disabled, and low-income persons through the provision of free civil legal services, primarily in Western New York. Their primary goal is to use the legal system to ensure that clients may live independently and with dignity. So with their mission in mind, I'm sure that you can understand why I wanted to invite them to come on to the Noggins and Neurons podcast. Much of the information that they share in this episode is specific to the Western New York area and the United States. And we realize that some of you are in other countries. And with that being said, we hope that you are able to glean something valuable from our conversation. Now, Rachel and Kelly. Thank you, Rachel and Kelly, for joining us on Noggins and Neurons today. We were just chatting before the recording started about some general healthcare advocacy. And I wonder if you could speak to us a little bit about that from the legal end and maybe incorporate some information about the medical legal partnerships. Sure. So why don't we give a little bit of background about who we are and uh, where we work? Um, 
Rachel and I are both supervising attorneys with the Center for Elder Law and Justice. We are a nonprofit civil legal services organization that is located in Western New York. We serve all the various counties of the Western New York region. Our primary office is in Buffalo. We also have an office in Lockport and an office in Dunkirk, New York as well. Um, our office has more than 40 years of experience assisting individuals with various overlapping legal and medical needs in ways involving general advocacy, counseling on access to care, paying for care, and many legal issues which are connected to other social determinants of health. Social determinants of health can include housing, employment, finances, and more. So we can touch on um, various topics today that um, may benefit the listeners of your of your podcast. Um, additionally, we also serve as guardian for individuals as appointed by the court system. And we have a social work staff here, which is a little unique for a legal services provider to um, employ a social work team. But the, the cases that we deal with involve a lot of human elements and, um, you know, folk, we, what we find is that folks need um, connection to a lot of different services. We try to take a holistic approach to our legal services. Um, and so we also have social workers on staff and we can talk about their role in our casework as well. Um, just a little disclaimer before we do dive in. The content that we want to talk about, um, you know, should not be interpreted as legal advice. We do advise everyone listening to um, seek independent counsel local to you in your geographic region to talk about your specific circumstances, because we're going to talk about a lot of general information today and some services that we've provided and perhaps use examples. But um, the Legal and healthcare matters, as everyone knows, are very circumstantial. Um, and, you know, we want to make sure that you get the best advice that's tailored to your situation. Where shall we go from here? <laughs> hmm. Rachel, do you want to provide a little background or add to anything? So I think the best way that we can move forward is maybe start macro about general advocacy and topics that could affect a lot of people and then tailor it down to a more micro level talking about specific legal issues that we see most commonly for individuals that we work with that might have had a stroke, a brain injury, uh, even Alzheimer's or dementia. Um, so talking about advocacy in general, um, we work with a lot of individuals who have gone through a really monumental experience. Something in their life has changed and they're not able to go back to the way things like they used to be. Um, and they feel at a loss or they struggle because um, they have needs that aren't met. They um, maybe don't understand everything that's going on and, and why things can't return to the way that they used to be. So when we're talking about advocacy in general, first and foremost, we want people to focus on what's happening right now and what is their current state of health. Folks that we see, we don't want them to lose confidence. So very often after there's some incident or episode, individuals need care. Maybe they need physical therapy, occupational therapy, something else. And it's common for 
individuals to feel like they can't advance or their healthcare providers don't think that they are progressing quickly enough. But to always remember, you are capable of doing therapy independently on your own and to not lose your voice as you're going through that process. We always tell people to ask for help also and to not be afraid of saying, I need assistance. There's no shame in that. There are many different programs. We can talk about some that are here in our area, but many different programs across the country and even internationally where individuals can get assistance, not only with having their medical needs met, but having their social needs met, having their legal needs met and other areas. So um, let's talk about when someone is in the hospital, for example. If someone's in the hospital, and they need help. Most hospitals have a program where there is some position that's called a patient advocate. And that individual, despite being employed by the hospital, is meant to advocate on behalf of that individual, pac individual patient. They can sometimes address why a particular treatment is being given or not given. And sometimes they can address why a person might be leaving the hospital and discharging to maybe a facility of some type as opposed to going home. But what's really wonderful about patient advocates is they're trained where they can help to uncover other issues and help to make connections to other resources. For example, they might be talking to someone and identify I think what you need here is really to talk to a lawyer, or I think what you need here is really to talk to a social worker, and they can help to link that patient with the appropriate resource that they need. So when the person's still in the hospital, that can be a really wonderful resource. Can I ask a question about patient advocates? Yes, absolutely. Well, you mentioned training. What is a typical educational background of a patient advocate or a typical training that they receive before they start working with people in the hospital? So I think their educational background is pretty varied, but when they're at the hospital, they certainly have trainings such as identifying social issues, identifying barriers to care, identifying barriers to discharge. They might be trained on how to recognize um, elder abuse, domestic violence, financial exploitation. Um, they might look at it through a trauma-informed lens as opposed to someone else who may not have those trainings. So I would say that a lot of the hospital staff have these various trainings, including the social work staff as well and nursing staff. But the patient advocate's a little bit different of a position because they are meant to work on behalf of that individual as opposed to pushing whatever the hospital's agenda might be. How does somebody get in touch with a patient advocate if they think they need someone to speak with? So if they're in the hospital, they can ask for that person to come and visit them. Most hospitals have at least one. Uh, the larger hospitals have many. It might have a different name. It could be a patient advocate. It could be 
uh, quality insurance or, uh, you know, various names like that, that discuss patients' general happiness with the services that they're receiving while they're there. The websites for hospital institutions typically have information about these individuals too. Okay. Thank you. So if someone moves from a hospital setting, maybe into a skilled nursing facility or assisted living facility setting, there's a federal program. It's called the Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program. And uh, here in New York State, we certainly have this type of program here. And the goal of this program is to inform residents of their rights and advocate on behalf of the residents who live in these type of facilities. Anyone who lives in a skilled nursing facility or assisted living facility, um, assisted living facility, or even a group home, whether they're a child or adult, has various rights. The rights might vary by jurisdiction. Some may be federal, some may be state-based, but an ombudsman could be a good resource for individuals to get in touch with if they feel as though they need an advocate beyond just them and they live in this type of facility setting. This question is centered around what's been happening, at least here in Western New York, as a result of the pandemic with limited visitation, family members not necessarily being as present as they were prior to the pandemic. So if you have a family member in a skilled nursing facility and you are noticing just changes within them through your interactions with them, um, probably through the phone or FaceTime right now, could you reach out to the ombudsman for them? Because I, I, I know sometimes that person will only communicate with the person, with the resident, correct? So I would say that a family member could reach out to the ombudsman, but that ombudsman then would have to talk with that resident themselves to make sure that what's being reported is the same as what the resident feels. Um, you're right that visitation has been challenging in all of the uh, facility settings, not just here in New York, but around the country as a result of the pandemic. Um, people have felt isolated. They certainly have had periods of time over the last couple of years where they're separated from their loved ones. Thankfully, right now, it's relatively open to go into nursing homes throughout the country, but in here in New York, visitation is open. The nursing home might say these are open visiting hours all day or you know a specific period of time. Uh, right now, the requirement is to provide a negative COVID test for entrance, but the facilities are helping to provide those tests if individuals don't have them. So it's not as bad as it was before. There are still alternatives to even us as practitioners. We do a lot of phone with our clients when it's not so easy to go and visit them or a virtual meeting as well. But yes, I would say family members can reach out to ombudsman to report a situation, and then ombudsman would go in and investigate and provide advocacy if it was appropriate. Yeah. Uh, another resource is uh, medical legal partnership. So these are really special relationships. And I looked up earlier today to see how many there were in the United States. In the United States, there are close to 450 medical legal partnerships around the country. These might be in hospital settings, whether it's you know regular adult 
hospital or children's hospital. It could be in clinics, uh, doctor's offices, veterans, hospitals, or clinics. So really kind of spreads the gamut. What makes medical legal partnerships so beneficial is that healthcare providers work with attorneys, typically from a legal services office or a law school, where they can provide free legal help to patients who are identifying some need. Uh, it's very often uh, it's common that individuals, especially when they're going through a recent change or traumatic event, healthcare event, their social needs change. Maybe they need new type of health insurance. Now they need Medicaid in addition to whatever they had before. Maybe they're experiencing a housing situation. Certainly if individuals were working, they were employed and now their income source has changed because they can't return to that employment, it has a trickle down effect. And a lot of other things can be affected. People can face eviction or mortgage foreclosure because they don't have the same resources to pay for their housing. They can face issues with student loans that they have or their car payment. They can potentially need various documents put in place to help them manage their affairs, like a power of attorney or healthcare proxy. And what makes medical legal partnerships so special is that an attorney is included as part of the healthcare team. So when you're thinking about that person-centered care, you have, you know, your general practitioners, your, your doctor, your social worker, maybe they see specialists like a psychologist, a cardiologist, whatever it might be. And then you also have a lawyer on the team too, who can come in even bedside if that person's at a hospital, meet with them, discuss their situation, and then provide help that's needed. What's even more special about these relationships is that sometimes if the person's in hospital, that doctor or that provider can only treat them while they're there, but that attorney can breach the four walls of that hospital campus and continue to provide whatever help or assistance they need beyond their stay at the hospital. That's fascinating. It's um, a type of program that's been around for Oh, a couple of decades. It started actually in Boston. Here in Western New York, we have a few medical legal partnerships, but we always tell individuals, especially if they're from out of state and they're calling our office because they've learned about us through some other mechanism, check to see if this type of program is available to you. Only South Dakota is the only state that doesn't have at least one medical legal partnership in the United States. So it's possible that this type of resource might be out there for you. And typically it is at no cost or low cost to a participating hospital patient or healthcare patient. I love that the attorney can keep, continue working with the person after they're discharged from the hospital. Now, do you see more follow through in the continuum of care with people following discharge from a hospital if they have an attorney on their team? So some things that we have seen here locally and that have been researched nationally is that individuals are more likely to comply with their treatment plan. 
So we always say that there's like the non-compliant patient. There's a doctor I work with at ECMC who absolutely despises that word. It's the local county hospital here. She hates that word, non-compliant. No one wants to not follow their treatment plan. No one wants to not feel better. There's typically a barrier or a reason why this individual isn't coming to their appointment or isn't taking their medicine. Maybe they can't afford it. Maybe that medicine is either I can afford my housing and food or medicine this month, which is not a choice that we want individuals to have to make. But that doesn't mean they're not compliant. It means that there's something else going on. So certainly working in this cross-section between legal and health we are very understanding, and I think there's a lot of lawyers out there who feel this way too, that there are other factors that impact a person beyond just their legal issues and their healthcare issues that need to be addressed. So that's one thing. People are more compliant with their treatment plan. The hospitals are more likely or providers, medical providers, whether it's a primary care or something else, more likely to get reimbursed by appropriate sources, that patient's more likely to feel less stress because they're not trying to fight alone. They have a trained advocate who can help them. They're more likely to take their medicine. So there's a lot of trickle down. So I would say that, you know, to answer your question, yes, uh, there's a lot of benefits that we see for a patient to improve their health outcomes when they get the legal help that they need. Just in listening to you speak about this, I feel myself relax a little bit. I think that there's so much stress for caregivers and for the person who has that life-changing medical event. There's, there, it, it happens so fast, and our medical system here in the United States is very overwhelming for people. And you know, if you don't even understand your diagnosis and the impact of not taking your medication, you know, making those choices, housing over medication, it, it just, it makes sense to me to help people. And if I were, if I were a caregiver, or if I were a person in your care, I think that that would help me at least feel a little more safe to go forward and take the next step. I think this could be a great place to talk about what health issues can be considered legal issues? Because I think, you know, we've talked a little bit about social determinants of health and the trickle down impact or effect that dealing with a health crisis or a change in circumstances can have on a lot of areas of your life, like housing, like employment, income stability. Um, but it, a lot of health issues can be considered legal issues that you can get legal counseling advice and advocacy and representation on that folks don't often think about. You think about a legal issue and probably 90% of the population's mind goes to law and order or, you know, um, a, a courtroom. And the reality of legal practice is less flashy than what TV would have you believe. And there are a lot of healthcare issues that can be considered legal issues where a lawyer might be able to help you navigate. I've been doing this work for almost seven years. And what I have learned is that the healthcare system sets you up for failure by design. It is wildly complex. It is something I spend every single day of my life studying and I'm still confused. 
you know, and, and so I think to know that there is help out there, possibly free of charge in your, in your regional location from an attorney to help counsel you through what you're going through and what your options are, you know, hopefully that can provide some relief to folks and give you ideas about who to reach out to. So some examples of healthcare issues that we assist with at the Center for Elder Law and Justice and that many other legal organizations assist with across the country are things like hospital discharges. If you were to disagree or feel unsafe or not agree with your specific discharge plan, we can counsel you through what your options are for appealing. We can counsel you through what the different other local organizations and services are that we could, you know, that you could be connected with, um, such as local government offices for the aging, or also sometimes called senior services, departments of aging, you know, if there are resources for getting you home, for example, let's say the hospital discharge plan is to send you to a skilled nursing facility, but you would much rather go home and you want to advocate for that. Lawyers who are, are trained in the area of healthcare can help counsel you through what all your different options are. The hospital should, of course, be doing that as well in, in most circumstances. But, you know, we can take a, a holistic view at what your finances are, what your housing looks like, and what your level of care is, and take a look at screening you for, okay, do you qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, or what does your private health insurance plan cover, or what are some other options to, you know, achieve your goal, and what are some short-term versus long-term goals we can set for getting you out of the hospital, and then getting you the level of care that you need in connection with all of those services. Short-term rehabilitation and skilled care. So, you know, Rachel went through the scenario earlier where maybe you transition from hospital to nursing home and you can reach out, of course, to the patient advocates and the ombudsman programs that are available. But what happens when you go into the nursing home and you start receiving some therapies and then your health insurance says, we think you're done. We think that you've hit a plateau and we're not going to cover your services anymore. What do you do? And a lot of folks don't realize that decisions about coverage for your health care and decisions about your care plan are appealable for every insurance, at least in New York state. So you are entitled to an appeals process when you have Medicare and Medicaid, which are the insurances that we most commonly deal with at the Center for Elder Law and Justice. But of course, there are also private health insurances that folks are covered by that also do have appeal options for coverage terminations and coverage decisions. So coverage by health insurance is a legal issue. It is not just a medical issue. It is something that you can go through an appeals process. You can advocate, you can work with the providers that you are seeing to see if any more coverage, you know, is available to you and what options are available there. Lawyers can also, I guess, segueing into providing benefits counseling. So just on a broader scale, we can take a look at your individual circumstances and what your goals are and provide you with information about what you qualify for and compare your policies. You know, a, a common phone call that I might get is, I've been paying into this long-term care policy for years and I don't even know what it covers or if I need it. 
And what I'll do is I'll ask for the contract. I'll take a look at it. I'll compare what their income and resources are and, you know, what their healthcare needs are and, and let them know, you know, this is either duplicative to coverage you're already getting through your regular health insurance, or yeah, maybe it's a good idea based on your income and assets to keep paying for this policy. Um, you know, we can do that kind of insurance interplay review and have that discussion. Planning for long-term care in general is something that folks often don't want to confront or don't confront until they have no other choice but to confront it because they find themselves in a, a healthcare decline. And we want to emphasize that for planning for long-term care and, and you know, your healthcare needs in general, there's no wrong time to seek counseling and advice about that from a lawyer. You, we encourage everyone to get early counsel and advice just to know what options are out there and, you know, the just in case folks. But if you're already, you know, if you're finding yourself in the hospital or in a nursing home or experiencing some healthcare decline and feel like you need some help at home and you just have no idea how to even go about paying for that or where to start, see what nonprofit organizations or, or law firms are available in your area. You can get insurance counseling and you can get counseling on long-term care and estate planning. These are legal issues. You also have a right to fair hearings for public benefits matters. So if you are on Medicaid or Medicare and a decision is made about your health care that you disagree with, whether it's your care plan, meaning the amount of care you are approved to receive in a home care setting, for example, or, you know, a straight out denial for drug coverage or durable medical equipment, you have the right to appeal all those decisions. So similar to, you know, the, the appeals process that's available to discharging from an active service from a hospital, from an inpatient kind of setting, you can also appeal any decision that's made on your healthcare, and you have a fundamental right to a hearing on those matters. Patient rights. There is a patient bill of rights for long-term care facilities. I think that's something that folks are often surprised to hear, but there is an actual written into law patient bill of rights. And if your rights are violated and you are in a nursing home or an adult care facility or other type of healthcare setting, you can consult with an attorney about what that means and about what your options are. There are complaint avenues with every single department of health across the, the, the state and the country. There are a lot of different resources, you know, that we might be able to connect you with. A couple of other really common things, you know, Medicare is a federal benefit. So Medicare, a lot of folks can answer questions about that, not just locally in Western New York, but for example, if you were to give me a call and you have Medicare insurance, I can, you know, depending on where you are geographically, as long as you're in the United States, you know, there, there are questions I could answer. Ambulance bills are a very, very common legal issue that we see. Then ambulance shockingly is not required to bill your insurance before they try to send you a private pay bill. So quite often, this is sort of horrifying to learn, but quite often, because an ambulance company can get more out of billing someone privately for the service that they provide, they will just send you a bill without billing your insurance who, you know, for, so for example, the average cost of an ambulance is about a thousand dollars and I'm rounding up, but it's, you know, ends up being about a thousand dollars for the typical ambulance transportation. 
what the reimbursement rates are through insurance are far lower. They're, they typically fall around $400, somewhere around there. It's less than half that they would get paid back by just billing you privately. So most of them just bill you privately and see what happens. Some people pay it. You know, we can resolve a lot of those cases by simply contacting the ambulance company and saying, please bill this person's insurance. And, you know, a good chunk of the time those bills get covered. And when they don't, we can be involved in an appeals process to try to get them coverage and see what's going on there. And then, you know, lastly, uh, one more example is quality of care. So I talked so a little bit, I hinted at quantity of care, you know, if you disagree with how much care you're getting or your care plan, but quality of care issues as well. So as attorneys, we can help figure out complaint avenues. You know, for example, in New York State, the attorney general's office has a Medicaid control fraud unit that investigates any type of suspected Medicaid fraud. And that can sort of uh, uh, interact with some quality of and quantity of care issues as well. You know, we're well versed in different resources to connect you with for those avenues too. So, you know, that's a, a really long spiel about the different types of, and that doesn't even cover everything. You know, we, we really want people to realize that the legal system can help you when you have healthcare issues. If you get a medical bill, this, this is the simplest way to think about it. If you get a medical bill and you're not sure why, because you have health insurance, you don't know what's going on with that. You're not sure if it's valid and you want some help figuring that out. A lawyer can help you with that. Well, there's an awful lot to unpack here. <laughs> I want to circle back around to the first thing that you mentioned about insurance deciding that you've plateaued. So I have some friends who work in subacute rehab facilities locally and come to find out usually it's therapy that will start to make that determination. But they found out more recently that insurance companies were not consulting with therapy and they were calling people in their rooms in the subacute rehab facility telling them when their discharge date would be. And I, I mean, this is not just shocking for me. You know, you take that to the level of concern where people don't, people don't know how the system works. They probably have never been in a subacute rehab before. So if it is their first time, they're not sure how this works. Maybe they'll just say, oh, okay. But no, it may not be okay. It may not be time for them to be discharged. So I love that we're just talking about this so that people who listen to this podcast at least have an awareness that that's not okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a good full circle example to some of the points Rachel made in the beginning of the conversation about self-advocacy and how important that is. And, you know, if you're unable to advocate for yourself, if you do have some family or if anyone listening is a caregiver or even a professional just working with patients, advocating for folks in that position is, is really, really important. Asking tons of questions about your level of care. Why is this decision being made? Requesting a care plan meeting, asking for the folks who are treating you to sit in the same room with you and explain to you where you're at with your, your healthcare level and why they are proposing a change in that, you know, in the services that you're receiving or they are, they are providing. This, I use the word plateau for a reason because it's a buzzword in this area. Unfortunately, it does seem like 
the legal standards for coverage and the medical standards for provision of care often butt heads. And I can't explain it. I, you know, it, it is, it is something that's a little alarming. It is something that comes from both ends of it. Sometimes it comes from the medical providers, but Sometimes you're right. It also just comes from the insurance companies saying, well, we looked at the records we have and we think you're plateauing. And, you know, it's that sort of butts heads with the whole concept of what is supposed to be a service, uh, a, a person centered care service delivery system that we have in New York state and that, you know, across the country we are, are supposedly have. But it doesn't it certainly doesn't feel like a person centered service provisions when you have insurance companies just calling you up and saying, it looks like you're plateauing, so we're going to stop providing your care. It is also a common misconception that 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 plateauing in your services is a reason to terminate insurance coverage. If you weren't deep in the weeds on this, like I am, you might not realize that. But, you know, plateauing is something that's often used as a reason for terminating coverage or terminating services. It simply means that it, your, your progression has slowed. Medicare, for example, there is actually a class action lawsuit and a settlement that has come out and it clarifies that Medicare coverage is available for folks who are in maintenance plans of therapy and care as well to help slow or prevent decline. So coverage is not just provided to folks who are showing clear and rapid improvement. Coverage is also available for folks to help slow or prevent a decline. And that is a very stark contrast to what some of these decisions that you read initially trying to terminate someone's care or coverage say. So oftentimes it does say plateau, but that's not an appropriate legal standard to terminate coverage. But think about your, you know, picture yourself being someone who let's say just had hip surgery and is learning how to walk again and, and is in that bed in a nursing home, receiving the inpatient level of therapy and care. And someone's saying you're plateauing, you're not progressing. And it, you know, what, how are you supposed to conceptualize that and know and understand that you can actually fight that decision? And that, that even if you were quote unquote plateauing, it still doesn't mean that you don't deserve a higher level of care or further extended services to help prevent your decline. You know, there's, there's so much and it gets so complicated, but you know, it does show a good example of how self-advocacy and ombudsmen and lawyers and doctors and, you know, everybody together can help advocate for issues like this. I appreciate this beyond what words can express because I know a lot of clinicians, they're occupational therapy practitioners, physical therapy practitioners who are very frustrated right now because the insurance companies are saying that people need to go home when they still need hands-on care. So in our language, somebody who requires minimal assistance, they still require hands-on care. They may need help with transfers. They may need help getting dressed and washed. Whatever it is, it's hands-on care. And for some reason now, insurance companies have decided that people should be discharged to home without proper care at home assistance at this meniscus level. And people, there's just so much frustration around this. And so on the healthcare provider end, like, do you have any helpful hints for us 
in standing our ground and helping to advocate for those people. Absolutely. Yes. I think that the most successful cases are the ones where we do have health providers who want to advocate and believe in the level of care that, you know, we are trying to help our clients, the actual patients achieve and, and get coverage for. We often, you know, my legal strategy is often to reach out to the people providing the care and see their perspective of things. Do you think this person does continue to need therapy? Do you, you know, what level of care is this person at? And are you willing and able to speak about that? Are you willing and able to provide letters of support for an insurance appeal that say this care is medically reasonable and necessary? If someone has Medicare, for example, medically reasonable and necessary is the legal standard of coverage. So if, you know, any provider is willing to put that buzzword in a letter and says this care is medically reasonable and necessary to prevent decline, to slow decline, to maintain, to improve what what have you, you know, putting emphasis on are the goals achieved that were originally set or is this person approaching a new baseline or are you learning that still is that even identified you know is it is it possible to go back to baseline or are we thinking about a new baseline based on their you know their current status of care yeah absolutely i think that the way to help your patients is to also be aware that there is a way to appeal. Providers can also submit insurance appeals to Medicare, for example. I don't want to uh, speak to all insurances because some of them are case-by-case basis and all private insurances too have their own sort of internal appeal routes, even though they, they do exist, uh, but they're all a little bit different based on the contracts. But more broadly speaking, because Medicare is a federal benefit and The most common insurance that I think we deal with, given that our population tends to be folks who are 60 and up or or certified disabled, and that population tends to be the ones receiving inpatient care at a nursing home. So all all the caveats abound, but yeah, I think it's, it's really, really wonderful when we are able to get some assistance from providers. We know how busy that the medical providers are, and we know that you might not always be available to attend a hearing Um, for a client or a patient on on something like this. But if and when folks are able and willing, I mean, even just providing a letter of support can can be the the determining factor in a legal insurance hearing on whether or not someone is entitled to coverage for the care. Because part of the standard is determining whether something is medically reasonable and necessary. And I'm a lawyer. The administrative law judges in these hearings are lawyers. We're not doctors. We're not medical professionals. So we need the medical professionals to help us and help define what is necessary. Um, So yeah, there's so much advocacy. And my goal is always to try to connect with the providers who are giving the care for these folks. Yeah, it does start with good, uh, solid documentation on the part of the care providers. I know the thought of going to court or you know, participating in a deposition, it is unnerving. I've had to participate in those before. And, you know, it's not something that I enjoy. But when I have my own good documentation to rely on, or the solid documentation of someone else, and I understand what my role is in that process, it certainly makes it a lot easier. And you want you know, I know that healthcare providers, they want what's best for their patients. Right. And, you know, another thing that Rachel mentioned too is 
that legal services can work together with the providers to help the providers get paid by the insurance. So it is a mutually beneficial relationship all around. Um, you know, we, we want to get the providers paid for the services they're providing as well. And the, the client, obviously, our clients, the your patients, obviously want that as well. So, um, you know, I'm so glad that you mentioned documentation because that is what we as lawyers have to rely on. The, the burden of proof, the standard, um, it lies with our clients to, to show that they needed and received a certain level of care in order to get insurance coverage. We don't create that documentation and neither does the patient. The providers create that documentation. So good documentation, clear, consistent you know, notes about where someone's at and what they need is, is vital. Yeah, and I'm going to bring up something else that's happening right now. So I, I know that a lot of providers, like on the therapist level, they're feeling abused by some of their employers. Not all employers are, are abusing their employees, but some are, and they have very high productivity expectations, which when they become unrealistic, something isn't going to be done well. And... I understand that people need to have jobs. There's always like this fine line that people walk and maintaining your own integrity and staying true to your own ethics, the, the code of ethics of your uh, discipline, all of those things. Those are the things that are important for being able to support whatever is needed if that person does seek legal counsel. Yeah, I, I think something you hint at here is the staffing shortages that we see across the country, across the world, probably. I can speak to them, you know, directly in the Western New York region and across New York State. We are seeing staffing shortages in hospitals, in nursing homes, in all kinds of facilities, but also for home care services. And it's only, it, the problem already existed pre-pandemic. It has only worsened with the coronavirus pandemic. And it's, there's so many systemic issues, unfortunately. Healthcare is a hard field. It's a hard job. There's so much that's asked of you. It's physical, it's emotional, it, and it's underpaid in, in many, many, many circumstances. And they are just really systemic issues that we as an office advocate for better conditions and better pay and more attention from our lawmakers. And I think that, you know, we certainly would encourage others to contact your lawmakers and be involved in advocacy for those issues as well, because you're right. You know, everybody's only one individual human being. If they have a caseload of a hundred plus people, you know, trying to run around and provide care and they're overworked and absolutely something slips. And it's really sad and unfortunate in a sort of trickle down vicious circle, I guess. But there, there is a massive staffing shortage across the country. And unfortunately, we're still seeing how that's unfolding from a result of the pandemic. Well, that was just a lot more than I uh, thought we were going to get into today. But I do think that people will feel a little bit relieved to know that there are other people, even on the legal end, that are seeing what's happening. And you gave us very good suggestions. So thank you for that. I wanted to circle back around to something that I forgot. <laughs> so, um, shoot. 
Well, I have something that we can transition into and then maybe you'll remember what uh, your question was. So we wanted to talk about two advanced directives and making plans. So it doesn't matter what age or state of life a person might be in. An individual is over the age of 18, so a legal adult, there are certain documents, uh, legal documents that it is very, very helpful to have in place. And I will say this not because I'm a lawyer, but because I truly believe this to be true. Having these documents created by an attorney can be so critically important to make sure that they're done correctly, they're tailored to your needs, and they fit your individual situation at the time they're created, but fit in situations that might unfold in the future that you're just not aware of that could happen. So what do we mean by advanced directives? There are some advanced planning documents that are legal and some that are medical, and we're going to try and unpack that a little bit. So the first document that we typically see individuals need when they have a medical condition that makes life a little bit more challenging for them is a power of attorney. This is a legal document where that person can appoint, appoint an individual or multiple individuals to help them manage their finances, take care of their property and other assets and resources that they own. Powers of attorney, at least in the United States, are different in each state. It's not universal. So the power of attorney that's in New York is different than the one that we might see in Ohio or Florida or California. There are international power of attorneys as well in different places around the world. So it's helpful to go to a practitioner, professional in your local area to help you put this kind of document in place. Powers of attorney can be helpful for individuals when they're recovering from an illness, a medical condition, an injury, because it allows someone else to stand in their shoes and help them with their important business. Things like bill paying, um, money management, um, signing checks, you know, all these type of things that normally you would do for yourself, someone else can help you with. It can be really helpful too, because then that person can focus on their health care while someone else is managing all of, you know, these important tasks. Do you have any strategies for selecting a power of attorney? I absolutely do. So um, when we're talking with our clients, we always emphasize that they should be choosing someone they trust, someone who has good money management skills of their own, and someone who is going to essentially include them as a partner in this process. It is typically a requirement that an agent under the power of attorney, so this is the person who's managing the affairs, that they follow the direction of the person who's made that power of attorney. So if I appointed Kelly as my power of attorney, I could say, Kelly, I want you to go to the bank for me, take out $100 and pay my gas bill for this month. So she's following a direction that I'm providing and we're participating in this process together. We wanna steer people away from choosing individuals who have had difficulty managing their own funds, individuals who have addictions or other social 
issues that might cause them to not follow what might be the best thing for that, that individual and to choose carefully. You can choose more than one person. You can have them work jointly together. You can have a primary, you can have a backup plan. There's all kinds of different ways to structure a power of attorney. And there's often some protections within that document itself, but taking a few minutes to consider who do I trust and who might best serve in this role is really important. I like to say this and I find it a little bit funny where we'll talk to an individual and we'll say, okay, well, who do you want to choose as your power of attorney agent? And they'll say, oh, I have to choose my firstborn. My firstborn, you know, um, she's a nurse and I want to choose her. And then, you know, a second, second child, we'll put them as the backup and I'll say, well, what does your second child do? Oh, they're an accountant. Okay, well, maybe we want to flip this around because maybe that accountant who has the money management experience, despite the fact that they're not your firstborn child, might be better suited for this role. So there's this belief that it should be my spouse or my oldest child or a child, when many times, maybe it's another person that would be better suited to to have that task. So somebody who's good at managing things, good at making decisions and following through with those decisions. Absolutely. What do you do in the case where there's a person who is the power of attorney, but they're not doing the best that they could do? So if our client still has capacity, the ability to think and reason clearly, we could revoke that power of attorney and cancel the powers within it and maybe put somebody else in a position of authority instead. If that individual no longer has capacity, at least in New York, there is a backup plan where a court could remove that power of attorney for acting improperly. So there's a protection that's in place there. Uh, Like I said, powers of attorney are different in each state. So each state will have their own rules as to what might happen if that power of attorney is not doing their job. Who initiates? the suggestion for change. I'm, I'm thinking of all these scenarios that I witnessed when I was working. So if that person still has capacity, they could. If there is a legal guardian that's put in place, they also could as well. So that's some, some ideas, at least in New York. I've witnessed uh, family dynamics in the past you know, in these dire situations. And, you know, I just, I'm a witness. That's all. I just observe. It's not my role. It's never been my role, but I have observed those things. And it it just makes me think if I can help people understand better now before that needs to happen, then, then I've learned something. I think that brings me to a really good point, which is no one thinks they need a power of attorney until it's sometimes too late. So I always counsel individuals, don't wait until you're in that crisis situation and you're standing around the emergency room bed saying, who's the healthcare proxy? Who can make the healthcare decision? Who's the power of attorney that can help with management of finances while this person recovers? Don't wait until that point. In regard to individuals that might have had a stroke 
or a brain injury who are facing maybe a dementia or Alzheimer's diagnosis, just because you have had that diagnosis doesn't mean automatically that you can't do advanced planning, that you can't do a power of attorney. Uh, many times individuals still can. So go out, talk to a professional and see if it's possible for you to get that. Um, especially for individuals who have had that dementia or Alzheimer's diagnosis, get it done early. Don't wait because we know that disease is progressive and there might come a point where that person's not able to sign a power of attorney anymore. And then the alternative is a much more involved process to seek guardianship for someone. So that's the first kind of document, power of attorney. Next advanced planning document is a healthcare proxy. This might have different names in, in different jurisdictions. We call it a healthcare proxy in New York. In other states, it goes by a healthcare power of attorney. This can be confusing because we just talked about power of attorney for financial issues. Or it might also be called a medical power of attorney. So this type of document is to appoint a person to be your voice for medical decisions if you're unable to participate that in that process sometime in the future. So healthcare proxy, when you're making this type of appointment, the healthcare proxy agent doesn't spring to life unless and until that person is unable to participate in the process themselves. Um, Many times healthcare proxies are done in conjunction with a living will. Living will is another type of medical directive where the individual can put down on paper what their wishes are for future medical treatment if they're unable to participate in that decision-making process in the future. Things that we typically put in a living will would be whether or not someone wants artificial nutrition and hydration, whether they want to be resuscitated, whether they want life support machines and, and things of that nature, whether they want pain medication. So an individual can write down, you know, what they do or don't agree with. And it helps an individual to take in consideration not only what their values are and how they wish to live, but also if there's any religious considerations that they would want their healthcare proxy agent to consider when they're making medical decisions for them sometime in the future. I have heard lawyers speak on this topic before, and they strongly encourage people to choose a person who is less emotionally involved in terms of being able to make decisions, because it's, it's very difficult to say, no, don't give my mother life support, you know, don't intubate her. She didn't want that. So you need that person who's more inclined to follow your wishes? So I personally don't advocate either way, whether it should be someone more emotionally attached or not. There is definitely truth to what you've said though. It's very hard for someone who's so close to that individual to make a hard decision. When I'm talking to folks about this, I ask them, who do they trust? Who do they think will honor their wishes? And who knows them well, that they can make that kind of tough decision and then let them choose. Sometimes they choose someone who's a friend as opposed to a spouse or a child because they are a little bit removed from that situation. 
think it's individual though. And then um, similar to a living will, there's a document called a MOLST, Medical Order, Order of Life-Sustaining Treatment. In New York, uh, MOLST can be signed by a physician, a nurse practitioner, or a physician's assistant, a PA. And it is a legally binding document, again, that talks about future medical treatment and what a person would or wouldn't want. Very often they are tailored to include whether someone wants to be resuscitated or intubated, whether or not they want artificial nutrition, hydration, and things of that matter, other life support types of measures. The difference between a living will and a most a living will may be instructive as opposed to legally binding depends on the jurisdiction where a medical order that's signed by a health professional will be binding. That's helpful. It's a question that kind of like lives in the back of your mind, but you don't really know that you have that question of wanting to know what the differences are between those two. So thank you for that. So when we're talking about, at least from a legal perspective, getting your affairs in order, we hear our clients say that all the time, well, I'm contacting you because I want to get my affairs in order. What they're typically meaning is I want a power of attorney, I want a healthcare proxy, maybe with the living will attached to it, and I want a last will and testament. So healthcare proxy, power of attorney are documents that are utilized during your lifetime when you're alive. Those powers end uh, within those documents when you die. And then a last will and testament is a document that controls essentially distribution of your property, who you want to handle your affairs once you're gone. So those are like the big three, healthcare proxy, power of attorney, last will and testament. And certainly anyone who's facing any type of serious health condition should consider putting these documents in place uh, so that they're set to go in case any situation might come up where a third party needs to step in and help to uh, manage their affairs or make decisions. You make it sound very simple. So working with a a lawyer or a professional to put these documents in place. I think that process is simple. The hard part is on behalf of the individual and deciding who they want to serve in this role and what they want these individuals to be able to do. And coming to terms with the idea that someone else could assist you, that idea of control and um, being in control of your own life, Um, and certainly in control of your money. Um, You never lose that control, but having someone else assist, that can be the tough pill to swallow. Absolutely. Was there anything else about those topics that we should cover? I think we pretty much covered everything. So your agency goes beyond social work and attorneys, correct? It certainly does. We have a more holistic, multidisciplinary approach here on our staff. We have attorneys, paralegals, social workers, and we have accountants that are on our staff as well. Well, I think even though we are Buffalo-based, this to me gives 
can give ideas to people who listen to the podcast, because I'm certain that people have visions and dreams for how they would like to serve humanity. And if somebody takes one idea that you shared about your story and the way that you provide services and takes that and does something to help provide a more well-rounded approach to care following a neurological injury or you know some life life altering event then that's my hope do you have any questions well i do they're not necessarily related to the legal aspect but i wonder if you ladies would be interested in sharing how you came to be a part of the Center for Elder Law and Justice, like what has driven you and steered you in toward in this direction uh, for your career at this point? Sure, I'll, I'll go first. This is Rachel. So I never saw myself working at a big firm when I went to law school. I just never saw that for myself. I saw myself working more to benefit the community or the public. I first worked at OCS in Rochester, New York, and it was a government um, position. You know, I worked for a municipality. And then I transitioned into legal services and I've worked in legal services now for, oh, probably 11 years. And what brought me to Center for Elder Law and Justice this was working on the medical legal partnership we have here. Uh, that's the role that I have because I had a family member who had a serious health condition. I saw what it was like to help that person navigate challenging situations. And I knew that I could use my skills to help other people who are facing that same type of situation. So I can go next. Uh, this is Kelly. Similar to Rachel, when I went to law school, I uh, too did not see myself working at a big firm. I knew that I didn't want an environment that felt cutthroat or you know traditional. Maybe I knew that I wanted to help people fundamentally, and I always joke that I got lucky um, because there was an opening when I was looking for a job, you know, working at the center for elder law and justice is the only role I've ever had as an attorney as a full-time job. And I've been here for going on seven years now. And I feel extremely passionate about the work that we do. I applied for a job in the healthcare unit, and now I'm fortunate enough to supervise that unit and that team. And, you know, I wasn't sure exactly what part of public interest I wanted to experience or work within. And when I started the work in the healthcare fields, it dawned on me that it's so easy to become passionate about because healthcare impacts literally all of us, no matter what your socioeconomic background is, no matter where you live, we all experience some type of foray into the healthcare field, into the healthcare system whether as a patient or an advocate or watching a loved one like Rachel, you know, and, and so it, it impacts all of us very deeply and it's such a complicated broken system. It's sort of a, a full circle question for you to ask, because as I said earlier, the healthcare system sets us up for failure by design. And, and that 
really is something that's easy to get passionate about once you learn the, you know, the, the more you learn about it, I feel like the more you want to advocate to, and to help people, at least that's been my experience. And so it's something that um, I got lucky enough to fall into, but have become extremely passionate about the more I'm involved in it. I wonder if you would have a tip or a suggestion for those of us in healthcare who do feel discouraged by the system and the brokenness of it. I always think that, yes, we can, we can talk about what's wrong for a while, but what can we do to help make it better? So do you have a suggestion for those of us who work in direct patient care or as a caregiver or maybe a little farther out in a supervisory role, what is something that you would suggest we do to help maybe move things in a different direction or just make it better while we're there? I have a couple um, tips. I think that one, you know, as you said, it's easy to become discouraged. It's like David and looking at Goliath and, you know, thinking that there's no way to overcome that. But I think that coming up with some actionable items, some realistic things that you can do with your position to help folks can be really productive. And one of those things that I would say is uh, use your voice, learn about who your local representatives are, get involved if you can in advocating for the the systemic issues that we touched on today. Um, But on a more local level, a smaller level to help your patients, you can learn about the different resources that are available to connect them with, find out if the hospital you work in um, or are affiliated with has a medical legal partnership. If not, maybe suggest that they think about that. Maybe suggest that they think about approaching a local legal services organization. Um, But aside from, from a medical legal partnership, also learning what social services are available, like Uh, you know, having a list of maybe contact information for senior services or the local county departments that might be able to help like offices for the aging or child and family services, you know, often thinking about yourself as a, a no wrong door, having a no wrong door policy. Someone shows up for healthcare services for you, but they present with a childcare issue or a medical bill issue or an employment issue, you know, thinking about what, what services might help this person address this? How can this be looked at as beyond a healthcare issue, sort of bringing yourself out of your silo and learning about how you can connect folks with, with other services like legal services, you know, reminding them that some of these issues could be legal in nature and they can get some help. How about you, Rachel? Do you have something different to add? Yes. So I would say for that individual, that person who's the patient who's getting the care, it's never too early or too late to try and make a plan, to try and put important documents in place, to think about what your goals are, not only for your healthcare, but for your social life. You know, what is your goal? Is your goal to go home? Is your goal to walk? Is your goal to, you know, eat with a fork again, whatever it might be. So it's never too early or too late to make that plan. I love those answers. I think sometimes we get a little overwhelmed and we don't necessarily know 
even where to start thinking about it. And uh, um, that's very helpful. What I'm hearing both of you say is do something. Like sometimes we don't know what to do, so we don't do anything. And it's easy for depression to set in. But sometimes making a phone call can make all the difference. It makes you feel like you're actually helping yourself or your loved one. Absolutely agree. Well, this has been phenomenal. Thank you, Rachel and Kelly, for spending this time with noggins and neurons and for sharing this valuable information. And I look forward to hearing people's thoughts about the information and seeing how uh, this can help people moving forward in their recovery journey or with their loved ones. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.